Welcome to Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie, and I'm excited to bring to you this next episode of Trivial Knowledge. Here's a little bit of background for those who are listening for the first time. I created this podcast to explore our universe together, to go back in time to learn about ancient history, across the oceans to understand other cultures, to journey through athletics, science, technology, and more. Each episode brings you a weekly dose of knowledge from five different topics drawn from four broad categories. And to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Now let's dive into episode five, Round and Round We Go. Social Sciences. If you ever find yourself in the Italian city Capua, standing in the Piazza Umberto, you may find yourself in close vicinity to a gigantic helmet made of bronze and steel. The helmet of Fiera Mosca, which celebrates the 150th anniversary of the unification of Italy, was dedicated to the famous Italian condottiero Ettore Fiera Mosca, a nobleman born in Capua, Italy in 1476. As a son of a baron, he spent his early life as a page to Ferdinand I of Naples before becoming a condottiero to Ferdinand II. For those wondering what a condottiero is, it is an Italian captain contracted to command mercenary companies in the Middle Ages. As a condottiero during the French invasion of Italy, he led a contingent of crossbowmen on horseback against Charles VIII of France. After receiving Castole of Caspoli as a fief from the King of Naples in 1498, he would serve under Frederick IV against the kings of France and Spain. After Frederick IV's defeat in 1501, he would switch allegiance, now serving under Prospero Colonna for Spain. It wasn't until 1503 that he fought in the battle that he became famous for, the Challenge of Barletta. Under the flags of Gonzalo of Cordoba, he led 13 Italian knights to victory against 13 French knights. Later, Ferdinand the Catholic, King of Spain, would make him a count, but the relationship wouldn't end well. According to legend, he fell in love with King Ferdinand's daughter, which would lead to his imprisonment and eventual exile from Spain. Following his exile, Fiera Mosca returned to Naples, Italy in 1505, where he would again fight against Spain and France under the Republic of Venice. After reconciling with King Ferdinand of Spain several years later, he would return to Spain to spend the remainder of his life before dying on January 20, 1515. He became a national hero in Italy during Resorgimento, and was the subject of national celebrations. Italian artist Arturo Casanova designed and created the helmet of Fiera Mosca in his honor. Casanova was born in Caserta, Italy, and works in Capua, a province of Caserta in Campania in southern Italy. He is a polyhedral artist who uses several different artistic techniques in his work, including painting, sculpture, installations, and photography. 
He has also participated in several art exhibitions, including the 14th Quadriennial de Arte in Rome in 2003, and an exhibition by Barbara Rose at the Museum Reina Sofia in Madrid in 2004, and a solo exhibition at Museum Masia in San Jose, Costa Rica in 2005. The helmet of Fiera Mosca, weighing 15 tons, contains 150 bronze plates that have been fused together. Before its current location in the Piazza Umberta, the helmet was placed on exhibition in Venice for the 54th International Art Exhibition. Other works have been inspired by Ettore Fiera Mosca's legacy, including an 1883 novel entitled Ettore Fiera Mosca, two silent Italian films in 1909 and 1915, and even two warships have received his name. For those who would like to see this famous work of art, a quick 30-minute drive north of Naples, Italy will place you at the Piazza Umberto and the Helmet of Fiera Mosca, now being used as an info point for tourists. Sports and Entertainment Before we get started on our next topic, which is about a small football club from Stanwell, Surrey, I think it is prudent to give a quick lesson on how football, or as we Americans call it soccer, is organized in England. The professional and semi-professional English football leagues are comprised of several tiers, with several clubs in each tier, similar to the baseball system in America. Now this can get confusing, but I will try my best to explain it to those who don't follow English football closely. In England, all professional and semi-professional teams, known as clubs, fall under the English Football League system, which can be thought of like a pyramid, with the top tier consisting of one league, and the bottom tiers consisting of multiple leagues. At any given time, there are approximately 5,300 member clubs in the system. But unlike in baseball, Theoretically, every single club has the ability to be promoted all the way to the top of the structure. The tier at the top is called the Premier League, and it is where the best teams each year play. Tiers 2 through 4 of the pyramid are run by the English Football League, and together with the Premier League are known as League Football. Tiers 5 to 11 comprise the National League system, and this is where the majority of the leagues are located. Now that we have a glimpse into understanding the English Football League system, it's time to talk about one of those lower league teams that don't get as much publicity as clubs in the higher tiers. And today, the club that we are going to talk about is the Ashford Town Football Club. Ashford Town Football Club was founded in 1958, which is a lot more recently than many of England's football clubs that were founded in the 1800s. The club initially used the name Ashford Albion, but adopted their current name in the 1960s, along with their distinctive tangerine colors. Upon their creation, the team joined Division 2 of the House and Low and District League, a lower league team in the pyramid scheme. Initially, the team did really well, being promoted to Division 1 and eventually to the Premier Division within the House and Low and District League in 1964. Unfortunately, their first campaign in the Premier Division was difficult, leading them to leave the division and taking their reserves team place the next season in Division 2. The second time around, they became even more successful and progressed through the divisions quickly, 
this time being selected to join Surrey's Intermediate League in 1967. The team continued to find success throughout the decades, winning some lower league cups before joining the Combined Counties League in 1990, a Tier 10 league. The team won this league in the 1994-1995 season and then went on to win it an additional four times, the last in the 1999-2000 season. At that time, following improvements to their stadium to meet the required standards of higher tier leagues, they were promoted into Division 3 of the Isthmian League Tier 8. They quickly progressed through this league as well, winning promotion to the Isthmian League's Premier Division in 2005-2006, reaching Tier 7 of the English National League system. They also found some success in the FA Cup an English tournament comprised of clubs playing for leagues in Tier 1-10, through 10, making it to the fourth qualifying round several times. Unfortunately, in 2009-2010, they fell on some hard times, losing their manager Mark Butler in October to the rival club Margate. Jamie Lawrence, a former player at Leicester City and Bradford City, both teams who play in the top four tiers of the league, became player manager, initially taking the team on a 12-match unbeaten run. But due to continued issues off the pitch, the team had a bad run of form, being heavily defeated in their last match leading to their relegation. The team currently plays in the Isthmian League South Central Division 1 in Tier 8. Their most recent manager, Russell Canderton, a former captain of the club who played as a center defender and reached 600 starts for the Tangerines, stepped down in April 2020, and Luke Tufts, the former manager of Nap Hill FC, has been selected to replace him. Russell Canderton will remain with the club as a club director on the board. In an article posted in the non-league magazine by Gareth Coates, Russell Canderton said of the club, It's a small club, and everyone here works together. It's special to me. I like the atmosphere in our clubhouse, and it compares well with other local clubs. Science and Technology You can see cities the size of Savannah and Charleston very clearly. I think the best view I had of any area during the flight was the clear desert region around El Paso on the second pass. There were clouds north of Charleston and Savannah, so I could not see the Norfolk area and on further north. I did not see the Dallas area that we had planned to observe because it was covered by clouds, but at El Paso, I could see the colors of the desert in the irrigated areas north of El Paso. These are the words of astronaut John Glenn during the first ever United States orbital spaceflight. Occurring on February 20th, 1962, aboard the Friendship 7 spacecraft, John Glenn completed three orbits around the Earth. The last two orbits were flown manually due to autopilot failure. For those who would like to know the definition of orbital spaceflight, it occurs when a spacecraft is able to complete one circle around the planet while remaining in space. Three types of orbits exist, low Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, and geostational orbit, and each can be defined based on the altitude and or velocity of the spacecraft. Sputnik 1 was the first human-made object to accomplish orbital spaceflight after its launch on October 4, 1958. Two and a half years later, 
Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin was the first human to orbit the Earth when his spacecraft, Vostok 1, launched on April 12, 1961. The achievement of orbital spaceflight, though, started several decades earlier, in 1903, when Konstantin Tsiolkovsky determined that to successfully reach space, a rocket would need to be built which had multiple stages of propulsion. Twenty years later, Hermann Oberth further advanced this idea in his thesis by rocket into planetary space. What both scientists were referring to is what is known as staging today, where spacecraft use two or more rocket systems that are mounted in a linear sequence. In staging, the rocket furthest back ignites at liftoff, then falls off once its propellants are exhausted. The next rocket in line then ignites, and so on, until the objective is reached. For a spacecraft to achieve Earth orbit, it is typically launched vertically from land, but then it must change its trajectory so that it is parallel to Earth's surface at the time it reaches orbital velocity. Orbital velocity is defined as the speed needed to balance the pull of gravity on the vehicle at the altitude it is flying at. It is basically the speed that keeps the spacecraft from falling back to Earth. The lowest altitude at which an object can complete one orbit without propulsion to maintain altitude is 93 miles or 150 kilometers with an orbital velocity of 17,000 miles per hour. Due to atmospheric drag, orbits at less than 200 kilometers are considered unstable. Therefore, satellites are typically placed in orbit at a more standard altitude of 350 kilometers to improve stability. Another important definition to know when discussing orbital spaceflight is an orbital period. This is the time required for an orbiting spacecraft to make one complete revolution around the Earth. Once in orbit, a spacecraft will need to be able to deorbit to make re-entry into the atmosphere possible. By retrofiring or firing the rocket engines backwards, most orbital spaceflights are able to change to a suborbit route. After this, all spacecraft lose most of their speed through atmospheric drag effect of aerobraking, where the spacecraft's heat shields are pointed forward to protect against high temperatures and friction. In fact, heat shields are so important that on John Glenn's re-entry for his first orbital spaceflight, he had to leave his normally jettisoned retro rocket pack attached to the capsule due to fears of a loose heat shield. For those interested in reading the entire transcript of John Glenn's first U.S. orbital spaceflight, including when he asked that a message be sent to the Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps that he now had his four hours required flight time for the month, please visit www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com where I will have a link available to a paper entitled Results of the First U.S. Manned Orbital Spaceflight, February 20th, 1962. You can scroll down to Appendix B on page 149 to read the full air-ground communication transcript for the MA6 flight with John Glenn and ground personnel. If you would like to learn more about Mercury MA6, which took John Glenn around the world, please visit my blog post on my website at www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. Geography and World Culture For today's Geography and World Culture topic, we are going to learn about an African cuisine 
from Cameroon. As Cameroon's history includes colonization by many different countries, Cameroon has a variety of dishes that vary from region to region. Legend states that Cameroon received its name in the 15th century when Portuguese explorers were astonished by the amount of shrimp in the water. They called the place Rio de Camaros, meaning River of Shrimp, which later became Cameroon. Cameroon can be divided into four geographical regions, the Western Lowlands, the Northwestern Highlands, the Central Region, and the Northern Region. In general, Cameroonian cuisine is notable for its bland starch foods that are enhanced with spicy sauces. In the North, corn, millet, and peanuts are more commonly used, while the South uses root vegetables like yams, cassava, and plantains. Fresh fruit is common throughout Cameroon, including native mangoes, oranges, and papayas. The most common source of protein is fish, though poultry, beef, and bushmeat is also consumed. Fufu is common in both North and South Cameroon. To make fufu, starchy foods are cooked and then pounded with a pestle until they form a sticky mass. The fufu is then formed into balls and dipped into flavorsome sauces or stews containing beef, poultry, or fish. Types of stews that are made in Cameroon include njama njama, eru, and endole. Njama njama is a vegetable stew containing leafy greens, tomatoes, and onions. Paprika, habanero pepper, and cayenne pepper are also added to the stew to enhance the flavor. Ndole is thought by some as Cameroon's national dish, and it is a spicy thick stew containing bitter leaf greens, spinach, and peanut paste. To add flavor, shrimp, prawns, beef, and crawfish are often included, and it is eaten as a side with bobolo. Bobolo is popular in the south and central regions of Cameroon and is made from fermented cassava shaped in a loaf. Another type of soup is igusi soup, a thick soup made with ground pumpkin seeds and cooked with dark leafy greens or okra. Cameroonian desserts include vatumba, a type of dessert consisting of a sweet pancake or donut and eaten with caramel sauce. One last common food found in Cameroon is aqua banana, which are deep fried fritters using banana as the main ingredient and eaten with spicy sauces. Some cuisine differs depending on what part of the country you are in. In the French-speaking parts of Cameroon, wine is popular at lunch and dinner, while French bread has become a breakfast staple. In English-speaking parts, pan loaves, also known as kumba bread, are common. If you would like to learn more about Cameroon cuisine, you can read an article on Jamie Oliver's website, written by Pete Rapson and published on June 18, 2014, entitled Cameroon, Tracing African Food Roots. If you would like to try your own hand at cooking traditional Cameroonian foods, the Immaculate Bites food blog has a blog posted on May 4, 2017, dedicated to Cameroonian foods. You can visit the website at www.africanbites.com backslash Cameroon food. Both links will also be posted on my website at www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. Today's random topic. Today, 
For our random topic, we are going to learn about a very small member of the insect class, the blister beetle, which has approximately 2,500 species worldwide. The blister beetle received their name due to their defensive secretion of cantharidin, a poisonous chemical which causes blistering of the skin. Like many poisonous animals, the blister beetle is often brightly colored. They also tend to have narrow bodies and broad heads and are unique in the beetle world because their front wings are soft and flexible instead of hard like most beetles. Blister beetles are considered hypermetamorphic as they go through several larval stages before reaching adulthood. The larvae mainly feed on bees and females often lay their eggs near the nest of a ground nesting solitary bee. After hatching, larvae climb a nearby flowering plant before using the claws on their legs to hook themselves to a bee. The bee, unknowingly, carries the larvae back to their nest and the beetle larvae feed on the bee larvae in their food supplies. After cycling through their larval stages, the beetles emerge from the bee's nest as adults and fly to the woody plants on which they feed. The majority of adult blister beetles are diurnal, which means they are active during the daytime. Cantharidin, the poisonous substance which gives the blister beetles its name, is secreted solely by the male blister beetle. He gives it to the female as a gift during mating, and she uses the substance to cover her eggs, which protects them against predators. The substance was first isolated in 1810 by Pierre Robiquet. Today, cantharidin is classified as an extremely hazardous substance in the United States, and facilities that produce, store, or use the substance in high quantities must adhere to strict reporting requirements. The substance cantharidin has been used in preparation since ancient times, even mentioned by Tacitus, an ancient Roman historian. Thomas Schmidt, the director of the Schreckenberg Institute, stated that the first reference of human use of cantharidin was likely in an ancient Egyptian text from 1550 BC, which described its use to induce contractions during childbirth. Catherine Monvoisin, a French fortune teller and poisoner, used the Spanish fly, a species of blister beetle, to prepare love charms in the 17th century. Even as late as 1892, Preparations, which used cantharidin as an ingredient, were used as treatment for smallpox. Andrew Taylor Still, founder of osteopathic medicine, even recommended inhaling a tincture of cantharidin as a preventive measure against smallpox. Obviously, these treatments are very dangerous and life-threatening and are not recommended or approved by the FDA. Probably the most famous blister beetle is a Spanish fly, it is an emerald green beetle found mainly in southern Europe. In ancient China, it was used to make the world's first recorded stink bomb. The largest genus of blister beetles is the Epicota genus, which contains many species toxic to horses. These particular blister beetles are attracted to alfalfa and weeds that are blooming and can release their cantharidin during hay conditioning where the stalks are crushed. To help prevent this, timing harvest before or after bloom, and using equipment without hay conditions that allows the beetles to escape before bailing are good practices. 
If you would like to read more about blister beetles, Popular Mechanics has a short but interesting article by Avery Thompson from September 12, 2018 on how blister beetles hitchhike on bees. You can find the link to the article on my website under the blog post on show notes from this week's episode. And that concludes this episode of Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you and that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to read the blog post on Mercury MA6, would like links to more in-depth articles on topics you enjoyed, or would like a sneak peek about next week's episode, please visit my website at www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at trivialknowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to hit the subscribe link on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I look forward to our new adventures next week when we discover what a mood swinger is and much, much more. I will end this episode with a quote from Leonardo da Vinci. Learning never exhausts the mind. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about a whole lot.